Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we have an interview. It is an interview that I was actually trying to get for the animation podcast drawn that I did earlier this year, but the timing just did not work out. But thankfully... Uh, this person that we're talking to is also a perfect guest for this show. So the person that Holly has interviewed is Mindy Johnson, and she is a creator. She is an author, historian, filmmaker, and musician. And she came onto my radar when a friend of mine told me about a talk that Mindy gave that she had attended about her recent book, which is called Ink and Paint, The Women of Walt Disney's Animation. The book covers ground that hasn't really been examined before now, and that's what life was like for women at the studio through the years and how so many women were innovating the medium of animation in the United States, but they didn't become household names the way their male counterparts did. And this interview was so difficult to prep for because this book is really substantial and there are so many really fantastic bits of information. And I wanted to ask Mindy about every single one of them. But even with a rather brutally pared down list, she and I still talked for over an hour and a half. So we are actually going to run this interview over two episodes. This is also territory I think our listeners have asked about before. We've had requests for some kind of episode about women in animation or or women in the world of Disney. So this is a great fit. Yeah, and just as a heads up, if you think this is just a Disney episode, boy, are you in for a surprise. Because really, it has just a lot to do about women in the labor market and how their rights and global things going on at the same time all interacted with one another. So we'll hop right into it. So it is such a massive book. It is so dense with information. And it really brings to light a lot of subject matter that has never really been explored before, to the best of my knowledge, in book form. So I'm wondering what that research process was like for you. Well, it involved everything from long, late nights and digging into people's closets and going on, digging under beds and digging through bankers' boxes of material and, um, scrapbooks and love letters and uh, just a whole raft of of things, a lot of phone calling, a lot of digging, literally and figuratively, into these women and their families. And um, when I first went into the main studio archives, it was a little difficult in that um, they had select material on various films, and we could go through Walton Roy's earliest ledgers, because initially focusing on the ink and paint teams, it was very materials-based, but I, when I asked for any information they had on the women and the roles that they performed, uh, presumably, in ink and paint, I was handed a folder that had five pieces of paper in it. So it, it was a real testament that history is preserved, written about, archived, and documented from a male perspective. And we don't think about women and their participation and roles. And and when you step back from that and realize that literally two sides have moved civilization forward, both men and women, and yet when we look back at our collective past, we're only seeing half the picture. We only know half of that story and that there were women 
from the very beginning in, in any historical context, but we just have never documented that. So in this instance, that's one of the reasons why this book was so large. <laughs> and I, I got about eight months into my research when I initially pitched the idea to my editor. Uh, we thought it, we both thought it would be a charming little volume because we, the only narrative we had been told with uh, women and their roles in animation was essentially the log line of pretty girls who trace in color. And I, we thought it would be this charming book about tea cakes and, you know, the dating and <laughs> social lives and activities that went on and that would be it. And I got about eight months into it and said, called her and said, I, uh, this is massive. It's epic. These women were at the forefront of so much. And I, I don't, it's it's bigger than what we thought, and I don't know how it ends. <laughs> and I had to kind of get my head. It just was a real weighted feeling of, oh my gosh, this is this is massive. Um, and I kept digging. She just said, okay, deep breath, keep going. We'll we'll enlarge the trim size and the page count. Keep going. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a very harmed and, and uh, fortuitous thing, and I'm so grateful that she saw what this was about. And it really has been shifting people's mindsets, shifting the, the paradigms that we've labored under for centuries. And people are realizing for the century of animation, but even beyond that, that you know, we've we've overlooked, uh, we've looked past, uh, we've, they've been unseen and invisible for too long. And it's time for that to change. And it is sort of fascinating to me that it is, this quest essentially started with five pieces of paper and ended up this really massive book. <laughs> um, but this yeah. book covers so much ground. If someone is going to it thinking they are only getting the story of women in animation, they will be surprised because it covers the history of film and animation. It puts all of those works on a much bigger timeline of things that were happening in the world that had nothing to do with any sort of entertainment. But I'm wondering why you wanted to put everything in that sort of depth of context. Well, isn't it nice to have your expectations exceeded? Once oh, in a yes. While? <laughs> and it was important um, for me to convey, uh, it was important to understand the context, the time periods. When you get to something like an, our newspaper article that comes up in the 1930s, where Walt Disney is quoted saying, I don't know why, but for some reason, women don't have the power. Well, in the early 1930s, animation was pratfalls and physical comedy and slapstick and really stemming out of vaudeville. And, and there was a lot of physical movement and motion. And the perceptions of what, where women were and what women could do if they're at a not the best point today, imagine how they were in the 1930s. Uh, so it was important for me to convey to the reader to place them into a drive-through experience of history, history, <laughs> rather than a rearview mirror look at where we where women have been. Um, simply because women have always been there. So it was important to understand. And for me, my question was. All right, well, when did women move into the workplace? I found that particularly fascinating, and it, it was important to sort of establish this overarching through line of when we think about it, 
at the time, again, to use Walt Disney as an example, when he was in Kansas City working on his earliest establishing his lapograms and other things, women had only had the right to vote for maybe a year or so. In 1920, women were granted full abilities with the 19th Amendment to vote. So when you place it in that context, oh, yeah, it, it suddenly is a pretty remarkable arc to realize. And when you realize that as we get to the you know, 1950s, you have one of the leading artists at Disney Studios, a single mother. She was widowed. She had two children. She was the sole breadwinner. She had to get one of her fellow animators to go with her to the bank to co-sign a loan so she could get a car. <sighs> that was the reality for women. Yeah, Women were not able to have their own bank accounts, their own credit cards until we're in the late 70s, and then women could get credit cards in their names. So when you understand the civil rights movement, the war, how the war impacted things, the civil rights movement, the feminist movements of the 70s, and where we're still working through that, it then starts to make sense why we're at the place we're at today for women, because we've, we've never tracked that history. Um, and for younger readers especially, it seems silly, but it's important that they understand where we've come from and where we still have to get to to shift the balance and even things out a bit. Women are still at a very... Uh, deplorable percentage within the entertainment industry today. And yet, when you go back to the very beginning, they were at a 60 to 70 percent with Alice Boucher, Lois Weber, Dorothy Arzner, Mary Pickford, Mary Francis, Anita Luce, many of the early women of silent film. It was women who established the narrative storytelling tenets that we still use today. It was women who established visual referencing as filmmakers, it was a very it was the Wild West, but women were right there, and yet for some reason they're written out of the history books. So this is a way to balance that. I love all of that context because it makes the story seem a little less quaint and a little more weighty, uh, which I really like about it. Um, and one of the other things that I really enjoyed is there is a section at the beginning of your book where you feature a bunch of different women that all influenced Walt Disney's life in various ways. And there are some really good stories there. Um, do you have a favorite among those early influencers? Well, I was intrigued and I certainly knew about his grandmother and and how she, you know, whose grandmother hasn't had influence for those of us who've been blessed with grandmothers, um, she really instilled this love of story and narrative and imagination. And for me, it, it certainly has been early relatives and educators. And when I think back on the influences that they've had on me as a writer and filmmaker and storyteller and educator, they really, there have been you know, people in the early stages of my life and career, and I think as hopefully listeners are thinking back to people who held that influence on them. And it's an important part of what builds the tapestry of who we are and what we bring forward in our own experiences. So for me, it was really fascinating to go back and, and get an understanding of where these seeds were planted in People like Walt Disney and their impact on how they shaped who they were as a person 
and then ultimately their career and their impact on our lives. And when you get to, like Daisy Beck, his his teacher, I love the fact that she made education a get-to. That's an important part of what I utilize when I'm teaching, rather than a have-to. So when I think back to the influences that certain educators and relatives and friends and colleagues have had on my life and career, and I'm sure listeners can do the same, there were certain people who stood out and that we hold in a special place. And I found it fascinating, like Aletha Reynolds, that when Walt was establishing his very tiny laughogram studio, you know, it was a strong statement that there was a woman in there as well, and that it wasn't this all-male world. And when I, in looking at this industry through a woman's lens, looking for the women, they were there. Rather than this sort of unconscious bias where we just assume women were not there. <laughs> we just don't even <laughs> look for that. So uh, it, that's what's been challenging is to get people to sort of wake up and realize that the very fact that procreation commands that we have women on hand right. <laughs> throughout our society, right? Of course women are there. The numbers may not be as strong, but it's important that we look for them. So I've been doing a lot of speaking to um, researchers and uh, students studying history and research to actively search, actively look for the women in the room uh, because they were there in some capacity and, and contributing in some manner. The other thing, too, is that we don't, as I said, there's this sort of natural default where we, we just automatically default to the male and... I think by shifting this, being more conscious about it and actively seeking out, um, it's a little more challenging to find women because of name changes and you right. know, there are multiple marriages or oftentimes they may go by a nickname more so than men. Um, it does make it a little more challenging, but not impossible. I really like that Mindy mentioned that women can be harder to track than men in the historical record, even in the last century, just because of things like marriages and name changes that maybe aren't always super well documented, but then they are uh, later a little bit harder to find. Coming up, this interview turns to talk of studio romances. And first, we're going to have a quick sponsor break. One of the things that you talk about in your book, which seems like it would naturally happen regardless, is that uh, there was a rather common event of studio romances cropping up. I imagine when you have a huge <laughs> department of women that is disproportionately huge for probably compared to other industries or companies um, working alongside a large group of men, like eventually there are lots of romances that pop up. Uh, will you talk about that a little bit and sort of the social aspect of it, but also the the more famous romance that came out of it? <laughs> sure. Well, it, you know, but again, these these basic stories that had been told, that had surfaced, was the ongoing notion that uh, the animation department was the monastery and the ink and paint building was the nunnery, or <laughs> you know, they had different little pet names. But in the 40s, 50s, um, you would have essentially kind of dating pools. That was sort of the match.com in a way, <laughs> because you had this pool of, of women. But 
again, placing it into context, this is a, a pretty unique area because other areas of industry, women were relegated to separate areas, separate pools. In some instances, uh, various office buildings had separate elevators, women's elevators and men's elevators, as women are moving into industry. And that's a whole other subject and a whole other podcast. But as women are moving into industry, it presented new challenges for the very male-dominated, entrenched day-to-day factories and, and other instances where, where women were beginning to move into. And as the numbers grew, circumstances did change. But for the most part, it was always challenging at Disney, in within animation at, at Disney and at other studios. This isn't just strictly for Disney, but at the other studios as well. Here you do have men and women in separate divisions and departments. Uh, women were there in secretarial roles uh, and making advancements into editorial and, and in other areas, but working side by side. Being the paint teams always seemed to be sort of the dating pool. And it, you know, there were always activities of, oh, hey, he's got a friend. And people were much more uh, social activities, dances, things like that were a big part of the scene as well. So there was lots of activities, baseball games at the lunch hour, lots of really great opportunities to mix and meet. In fact, there would be uh, Ward Kimball and his Higajiti 8 band would play at the lunch hour in one of the sound stages or right outside the animation building. And so couples would pair off and dance, and it's a great way to kind of get social and, and spend your lunch hour um, gathering and seeing people because the work they were doing was very focused, very sedentary, seated at those desks. So Walt realized it was important to have kind of a good release and a good outlet um, to keep his artists balanced. There were uh, lots of romances. Uh, a number of the ladies had said, oh, I met, you know, all three of my husbands or... <laughs> Disney was a great source to find, you know, good dating material. Um, There were a lot of characters and, you know, a lot of unsuccessful relationships, too. But And there were always showers and baby showers. And um, so it was an interesting progression where the first generation, as young women coming in, were career women, which was trailblazing at the time. Then as they were dating and meeting and getting married as was the standard in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond, once you got married, women left the job. And and then it was expected to be raising families and being at home. For some women, it, that was too much. It was a challenge. Uh, I have a couple of ladies who have said, you know, when that occurred, my first marriage, I had my son, my child, and I I died. I was expected to stay at home and bake cookies all day. And here I had trained and I wanted my career in animation. And yet society didn't permit that in a lot of ways, uh, socially, uh, politically, economically. Even into the 1970s, uh, one of the women who was the head of a major department, when she and her husband were applying for their first home loan, the bank would not look at her income. They wouldn't count it. And here she had ran a department at a major studio. 
but they wouldn't factor it into what they qualified for because she was a woman. So with regard to dating, yeah, uh, even Walt was uh, kind of the workplace was an interesting forum for him to find social companionship. In fact, the very first employee of the Walt Disney Company was a woman. Her name was Kathleen Dollard. She was a friend of, actually a friend of Lillian Disney, oddly enough. But uh, (laughs) Kathleen went to work for the Young Brothers, and it's verified to the family. She felt sorry for the young bachelor boys. She would often make dinners and cook for them or bake things for them. And, And it is verified through her family that a very young Walt Disney proposed to her, and she turned him down because she didn't think he'd amount to anything. (laughs) (laughs) So when things were getting busier and there was more work to be done and a young Lillian Bounds came into town, Walt Disney knew Lillian's sister, Hazel. In fact, Hazel met young Walt Disney when he was setting up his animation stand in his uncle's garage. She was in the neighborhood there, and so she was quite a vivacious force, and apparently the one person who could go toe-to-toe with Walt Disney, and he paid attention, and she also uh, made a mean chicken dinner, so that made you know his young bachelor heart quite resounded with him, but Hazel was quite a, a, a force, and she's the one who recommended her friend Kathleen as their first employee. And when they were expanding, and Lillian made her way down from Idaho after she graduated to sort of live with her sister and, and have a begin life in the big city, she, Kathleen said, well, you know, we're looking to hire someone, but don't vamp the boss. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. We don't have it verified. It, it sort of makes sense that she was like, you know, don't horn in on what I'm thinking here. But then she gave up on him, and Walt sort of, this cute little brunette who came in and started as a secretary and was doing the blackening, the early blackening on the film. Uh, and he would uh, take the girls home after they were working long hours. He had a little automobile and he would drive them home. And Lillian kind of figured something was up when he would take Kathleen, who lived further away, home first. And then he'd circle back so that Lillian would be dropped off last. So it's very sweet. And the rest is history on that one. Um, yeah. It's a very different time. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, you mentioned a few moments ago uh, Aletha Reynolds. Will you talk a little bit more about maybe her and one or two of the other trailblazers that you featured in your book? Oh, there are so many great trailblazers. Aletha was pretty unique. She was an artist uh, in Kansas City and uh, had helped out and worked on Walt's early laughograms. She also, uh, I believe, did a little bit of work on the Alice's Wonderland, the very first of the Alice comedies. But when the money was running out on his little studio there that went bankrupt, she had to go off and find other work. So Aletha is sort of a, a very early but unique person, bit of personnel in the earliest days of Walt's life and career. And I felt it was important to include her because it really does speak to the fact that he really wasn't gender biased. It was about your talent and your ability. And in fact, in many ways, very early on, he was very progressive about getting women into places that, you know, many firsts, which delightfully, there were many firsts within the Disney studios. 
As we get into the late 20s, Hazel Sewell is brought in while the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit series is underway and things are expanding at the the little Hyperion studio. Hazel uh, was the first woman to head a major department within animation overall. In New York, where many of the other studios had been running, Bray Studios and uh, Pat Sullivan and Max Fleischer Studios, they had women working there, and I'm my research continues into finding, possibly, but the records are sadly incomplete because they were women. So even then, it's a testament to how invisible women really were considered to be, even though they were doing the bulk of the blackening or you know, celluloid aspects of the animation production process. So women were there, but it was always men overseeing their art departments. We do have a couple of other early exceptions. But with regard to Disney, there were many, many firsts for women. Again, starting with Hazel Sewell, who was the first woman to head a major department within animation overall. She oversaw what was called the Blackeners at that time, she transitioned that role, and if you look to the earliest Alice comedies and Oswald, it's simple black, literally outlining the pencil lines onto celluloid with an ink pen and then blackening in, so hence blackeners. And that was actually the lowest end of the animation hierarchy, and it was a training ground. So men were doing this as well. But it was Hazel who said, you know, women are better. And it's a much more exacting thing because you could see any little wobble or wiggly lines showed up on the screen. So in an effort to tighten the artistry and expand the artistry, Hazel Sewell is a real pioneer with that. She transitions it. She's the first to have an all-female team of blackeners, and she separates out the artists. So we have tracers and opaquers at that point. She then later advances that into inking and painting, and that's when in the uh, early, mid-30s, and that's when we really see the artistry of uh, tapered lines in and out and the full sweeping calligraphic strokes of inking begin to to expand and, and enhance the animation process. And we also have painting, and initially, it's really sort of making the uh, celluloid you know, opaque so that there's no light leaks or anything in there. But it's women at Disney Studios, uh, starting with Mary Tebb, did some of the earliest inking and painting on the Silly Symphonies, the Skeleton Dance. Which is one of the best ever. Isn't that mind-blowing? I love Here's it. Here's a little fun fact. Bob Iwerks, of course, is known for doing the animation, but he had a couple of, of other gentlemen helping him with that. Mary Tebb, one woman, did all of the tracing and opaquing at that point on that film. One woman did everything. And certainly there are a lot of cycles on there, but she oversaw and handled all of it. And you're talking roughly anywhere from eight to 13,000 pieces of celluloid. So that was a remarkable feat all in itself. Um, as we move into color, the advent of color, at that point, with the advent of the Silly Symphonies, the women are working with black, white, and about three or four shades of gray paint. And this is paint that you'd get from the local hard, hardware store that you'd 
paint your bedroom with or a piece of furniture or something. Um, and so it was not really designed to adhere very effectively to celluloid and nitrate celluloid at that. But it was also, if you wanted to achieve a certain color, so they purchased a couple of paint mills so they could refine the paint to get them to blend and work towards adhering. But then as they began to expand in color in 1932 with Flowers and Trees, they were working with 80 shades of paint of different colors, literally pulled off the shelves of a hardware store. And it was incredibly problematic because some colors would not convey properly under the light for the camera. So they really had to feel their way on, you know, if we want to achieve the look of, of fire, what shades are really going to work for that? So they almost had to go to a, a mix a deep orange into a red in order for that to not be washed out on the screen once the cells are under the camera lights. So it was a very challenging and accomplished within an incredibly short amount of time, and then went on to achieve the first Academy Award garnered for animation. Not so much for the animation, but largely for the application of color, and it was all women working in that area. Hazel Sewell and her team. By the way, if you have never seen the skeleton dance, I highly recommend you Google it. It is an absolute delight, and you will gain a true appreciation for Mary Teb's work inking and painting throughout that entire short. We're going to pause for just a minute to take a break for a word from one of our sponsors that keeps the show going, and then we will get back to this interview. And this one we're actually going to pick right up with Mindy. Uh, It's not me asking a question. It's just her talking in this next segment. As she continues to discuss the challenges of working with paint that the women of the studio had to overcome. And there is a great bit of information coming up about how a woman chemist really figured out how to move the entire industry forward. As it continued and expanded with the Silly Symphonies in color, again, paints, as they were getting different paint types, that they were using, they wouldn't blend properly, they'd lose suspension, they wouldn't dry properly or evenly, and you'd get it under a, you know, couple hundred pound platen in the camera room, and suddenly you'd get paint splatter, and it would stop production, you'd have to clean off the lens and the and the platen and start all over again and redo the cells. So it was very problematic, and even trying to achieve proper color palettes was getting problematic, because each film, each short, had its own palette. They moved into their brand new state-of-the-art ink and paint building in 1935 at the Hyperion Studios. Walt had brought out a young artist from Chicago. Her name was Mary Weiser. And she saw the problems happening and she said, you know, we can do better. And so she went to Hazel Sewell and Walter Roy and she began to study chemistry got her degree in chemistry, and then Walt Roy sent her off to different paint vendors in New York, and she established the first and only paint lab in the world, creating paint exclusively for celluloid animation. Oh, wow. Yeah, nothing like it in the world. And by the time we get, this is in roughly 1935-36, within about a year, a year and a half, she moves from a couple of hundred colors that were pulled off of the shelf that they were trying to work with to creating their own paint labs. In the first year alone that they were underway, she saved that studio $6,000 in white paint alone. But 
went on to expand the palette going from, think about it, 80 colors off the shelf for Flowers and Trees in 1932 to over 1,500 shades of color in 1937 for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's impressive. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) And she had teams of women chemists. It was all women, and she created her own manuals. There was nothing like this in existence, nor has there ever been. And she created her own teams and wrote, typed out the original manuals, which still exist, and her experimentation logs. She also, Mary holds two patents. She created what was called the blend technique, which harkens back to the early dye techniques that were used in the silent days of hand colorization on live action films and early photographs, hand tinting photographs, which is why in telling this sweeping story, I give you over a century or more of history, history, um, because you have, they kind of call back to the earliest dye techniques in order to create this blend to Snow White cheeks. Now, there's a charming little myth that the ladies use their own makeup to get that look of rouge on her cheeks, but it's it's a myth. It was actually Mary and her teams, and they developed this dye technique, Mary, and uh, we have the log reports, hundreds of experimentations. Each one, each variance is logged in. I mean, this was not Betty Crocker's kitchen. This was Madame Curie's lab, and these women were redefining how we see and experience animation and were a large part of what brought and made Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs possible. You think about it, story has to change, and you have the first woman credited for story in animation. Her name was Dorothy Ann Blank. She came in a couple of years before Snow White because Walt was leading towards this. And Dorothy did many of the basic story breakdowns early story development concepts, exploring different offshoots and narrative ideas. She did full character breakdowns and descriptions and established the basic templates of how we still approach feature-length animated storytelling today. She did this in the 1930s. In fact, she was exploring story concepts for Peter Pan and The Little Mermaid in the 1930s. Oh, wow. Films that you know, were box office champs in the 50s and the 80s and 90s. So going back to the very beginning, she was a real trailblazer with what we still do today. And yet nobody knows about her. (laughs) I know. It's (laughs) astonishing to think about uh, really the level of advancement these various women achieved. And they're not common everyday names, and they probably should be. Exactly. They they should definitely be right up there with the Windsor McKays and the Walt Disney's and and others. Certainly, there is a hierarchy to the work, but when you look at the nine old men, I, oftentimes when I'm speaking, I speak to 10 extraordinary women and beyond. There were just as many men as we're aware of. There were many incredible women trailblazing in editorial, in writing, in backgrounds, in songwriting, in voice work and in live action reference modeling and virtually every aspect of animation we still have big ceilings to crack in directing yeah but that's changing yes this is where we're going to leave things for today's episode but there is 
So much more to come with Mindy on our next episode. She is just a font of information. And in the meantime, if you just cannot wait for more Mindy, you can find her online at mindyjohnsoncreative.com. That Mindy is M-I-N-D-Y. We'll also have that link in our show notes for the episode today. Do you also have some listener mail? I do. And since we are talking to someone about animation, we are going to have the continuing discussion of something that came up in our Windsor McKay episode, mm-hmm. Rarebit. The ongoing saga of Rarebit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the best, I mean, a cheese saga I'm totally in for. Uh, this is from our listener, Eric, and he wrote, Rare Bit is indeed a cheese sauce, but it can be a lot more complex than what you'd put over macaroni. One of our other listeners mentioned that that was how it was explained to them when they were traveling. Shred or grate cheddar into a pan with a bit of butter to start it melting, and then comes the tricky part, the consistency. You're going to add a liquid, often beer, milk if you avoid alcohol. Queen Victoria apparently used champagne. And also a bit of flour or a beaten egg to bind the mixture and make it smooth. It can be either a pourable sauce or thick enough to be spooned onto toast or crackers as a finger snack. I'm not detailing the recipe because there are so many. The best time to make rare bit as a standalone dish is in the evening with friends. The best way to make it is at the dining table in an old-fashioned chafing dish over a flame. The Sternow Chafing Dish Company, which later became the Sterno Company, published this verse. Eating at bedtime. Quote, wise old doctors used to say, do your eating in the day. Never eat a thing, they said, just before you go to bed. Modern doctors differ quite and say just the opposite. Food at bedtime, they explain, soothes the nerves and calms the brain. So we cannot go astray if we eat both night and day, and a chafing dish at night brings to life a new delight. I love that. I kind of want to get it written out beautifully and maybe framed. Yeah. (laughs) Anything that encourages eating cheese day and night, I'm in for and also an opportunity to say opposite instead of opposite. I know. I, I skipped it because it just sounded too weird in my head. Uh, that is very cool. I did not know this detail about Queen Victoria and champagne in her rare bit. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting because unlike a lot of cheese or uh, cream-based sauces you would make today, it doesn't start with a roux. It starts with the cheese. Yes. And then the flour gets added later. Uh, I will also note that there are a lot of different ways to make mac and cheese. Uh, that are all, like, they vary across cultures and vary across regions, and there are some mac and cheeses that start with a roux and others that do not start with a roux. And Mm -hmm. if you ask people in different communities about their mac and cheese, you may get vastly different answers. Oh, if you ask different people in the same family at a a reunion, you might end up with fisticuff. People (laughs) feel strongly about mac and cheese which is because it is delicious. Uh, If anybody else wants to share more of their rare bit information, uh, feel free to do so because I am loving the ongoing discussion. Eric, thank you so much. This is very cool. And I love that you included this verse, which I had never seen before. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We are also across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History and mistinhistory.com is also our website where you will find every episode that has ever existed, as well as show notes on any of the ones that Tracy and I have worked on, uh, and occasional other goodies. And we encourage you to visit us at mistinhistory.com and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 